Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We have a brand new series that we're starting that will take us all the way up until Mother's Day, and it's a series that takes us verse by verse through Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, join me there, Galatians chapter 1. The theme that we're going to be covering for the next three months, all the way up into Mother's Day, is the theme of grace. We've all heard that word before, haven't we? It, you, it gets used in different ways. Different religions use it. Of course, the problem is that even in, even in Christian thought, the, the word gets used in a very different way sometimes, which is unfortunate because there is no more powerful or attractive or empowering word in a Christian's vocabulary. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin or doubt or despair or anything, the word you need to hear is grace. But you don't just need to hear the word. You need to know its proper definition. You need to know how God defines it. Then you need to know how it's appropriated to your life. And then you will lead what is called in the title of this series a grace-driven life, which is another way of saying you can live free. You can live liberated, no longer enslaved to sin, no longer living in doubt, no longer living in despair. You can live a grace-driven life. But the question is, what is grace? Because so often it gets misidentified. When I was 14 years old, I lost my maternal grandmother very early. She was 64 years old when she passed away suddenly from a heart attack, and, and we were all grieving. And in the middle of that, a newspaper reporter calls, the obituary reporter. Very rare you get a call from an obituary reporter, but they, they called my mother and they said, Mrs. Rainey, we, we just have a discrepancy that we've discovered as we're looking at all of this. Her birth certificate said that she was 64, but her marriage license has her at 66. And we, was wonder, we were wondering if you could straighten that out for us. Some of you are laughing and giggling. You know how this story ends already, don't you? When my grandfather decided he wanted to marry my grandmother, he took her to the courthouse, and she was not 18, but 16 years old. And he and her both wanted to get married. They wanted to do it without parental permission. This was back in the 1930s, so they didn't have a lot of ways to, to you know, to, to get documentation and make sure this was all legitimate. Both of them swore to a county judge that she was of age. And so here we go. 48 years later, this lie catches up with them. And my mother hung up the phone and said, well, I guess I'm the product of an illegitimate marriage. <laughs> 48 years it took, but it finally caught up with them. Now, they're both in heaven by this point, so it really didn't matter. But how many of you have ever used a fake ID? You don't want to have a second thought. Don't answer that. Don't, don't. <laughs> you know, you can manufacture documents that look like the real thing, don't you? I, I've started traveling a little bit more since the church is at a, a level now where I, I just didn't feel like I could leave quite as often, and I'm still not gone 
terribly frequently, but more often than, than I did a couple of years ago. And I've got a couple of trips this coming uh, spring and summer, just some things that we're tangentially involved with. I've got a quick over and back to London in April. I've got a, about three or four days in Israel coming up in June. And so what I decided was that I would rejoin this organization called CLEAR, C-L-E-A-R. And basically what it does is they do a pretty thorough background check on you so that when you go to the airport, there are certain steps that you don't have to take that everybody else has to take. And one of the things I love most about it is I get to cut in line. So if I ever see you at Dulles, please don't be mad at me. Okay. I paid money and I went through a, a, a set, of, set of circumstances, some procedures to be able to get me there. Now, here's the thing though. Once I cut in line and I get to the head of that line, there's this little machine there and they don't just do what the TSA agent does for you, which is, let me see your passport. Let me see your, your boarding pass. I'm going to line them up and I'm going to look at you three or four times and then I'm going to hand it back to you and, and let you cross. There's, there's a little bit more scrutiny because it's an electronic scrutiny. I don't just present my passport. I take these two fingers and I put them on a pad while simultaneously looking into a hole while a machine scans my eyeball because they know I could fake a passport if I wanted to, but there's simply no way to fake an iris scan. And if you try to fake that, you're going to get stopped at the gate. You're going to have a really nice hugging session with the TSA if you try to do something like that, right? Because it's not going to get you where you're going to go. And when it comes to this concept of grace, there's a lot of fakes out there. And so what Galatians does is it helps us find the real thing so that we don't live this life in jeopardy, so that we're not jeopardized in the next life as well. So this is why it's such an important book. It's because from its first delivery to the churches, and there's a map here that will show you where those churches were in modern-day Turkey, basically from the extreme north of the Black Sea all the way down south. That whole region was known, generally speaking, as Galatia. And for the last 2,000 years since it was first delivered to that region, it has been a book that has set things right for the church regarding a proper understanding of what it means for a life to be driven by grace. How do I live in the freedom that the gospel provides? How do I break free from sins that, that have me trapped? Galatians has answered that question for centuries, and I just have a really good feeling it's going to answer that question for some people in front of me over the next few months. It's going to blow the doors wide open and liberate you in ways you never thought possible. Why do I know that? Because it's done it so many other times in human history. In fact, let's just go back to one of those times. The year is 1512. There's an Augustinian monk named Johann von Staupitz. He has a student of his who is simply terrified of the judgment of God. And he keeps coming back to Staupitz to confess absolutely everything. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation before, but there are some people that by virtue of their personality or whatever, they live in such dread of the judgment and the vengeance of God that they tremble all the time. They want to make sure they've confessed absolutely everything. And, and Stoppitz at the end of the day, well, to be honest, he got annoyed. In fact, it, it is said that at some point in history, he looked at his young student and said, you know, in all the years that you've been coming into the confession box, I've never heard you confess anything even remotely interesting. Why don't you go out and really do something? He didn't really mean that. It was a joke. But that student of his was a young monk named Martin Luther. Luther, who would now go on to become the father of the Protestant Reformation. And Stoppitz said, I think I know the answer to this dilemma and to this young man's dread. And so he sends this young aspiring PhD student to Wittenberg, Germany on one assignment. I want you to teach New Testament studies, and I want your first class to be able to teach the book 
of Galatians. And during that process, Martin Luther was liberated in a way that didn't just affect him, but frankly, can we just be honest, historically, it's the reason you and I are sitting here today. And this is what Luther said of this letter. The epistle to Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. You know you're a book nerd when you say, I love this book so much I want to marry it. And the reason this book has been so effective in this way is because of why it was written. One year before this letter that we're about to study gets penned, Paul's on his very first missionary journey. He plants numerous local churches in this Asian province of Galatia. Those churches are made up uh, mostly of Jews, not entirely, but mostly of Jews who were living in the area at the time. And not long after planting those churches, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And according to what we will read when we get to Galatians 2, he has a confrontation with some of the other apostles, most notably Peter. Sometimes it's easy for us to romanticize the early church. You ever heard somebody say, well, I want to go be a part of a church that's just like the first century. Really? Is the church you're in, do they have a lot of conflict? Do even the leaders fight sometimes? Well, yeah, that's exactly like the first century. That's what it was like. These men were, were arguing together. We get this sort of you know, lionized version of them that leads us to believe that they always got along, that they always walked in step with the Spirit, and that everything they wrote in the Bible just sort of suddenly came down from the clouds. Listen, that Bible you hold in your lap is the result of controversy. It's the result of arguing back and forth and trying to come to some conclusion. And the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit inspired result of what you have in the scriptures did not come easily. It came as a result of some disputing, some, some of it very sharp, even between people like Paul and Peter. So let me tell you what's happened with Peter. He's, he's, he's been struggling this entire time with the idea that following Jesus should, should it or should it not include the food laws of the Old Testament? Should it or should it not involve circumcision and other requirements? He waffles back and forth on this until he, he finally, he and Paul meet each other at Antioch in Syria, just north of Jerusalem. And Paul confronts him for his double-mindedness. We see this reference in Galatians 2 verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So the issue for Paul was that serious. This isn't just a a matter of interpretation. This isn't just who you voted for versus who I voted for in the last election. This isn't just you have a glass of wine and I think I need to refrain. This isn't some small thing where we can just agree to disagree. The gospel in Paul's mind is on the line here. And if you require circumcision and submission to dietary restrictions, then you have compromised God's simple message of grace. Let me tell you why this is important. It's because for a book about grace, this is a pretty angry letter. You're going to read, we're going to get maybe not even through chapter 1, and you're going to go, man, for a book about grace, this is angry. Why does he seem so ticked off? Well, it's because everywhere he turns, he's running into people who are perverting and maligning and changing the unadulterated message of the grace of God. They're doing that in a particular way in Galatia. And so his entire life is spent in service to the pure message of God's grace because Paul's been a beneficiary of it. On the road to Damascus, he learned about the lordship of Jesus from that personal encounter with Jesus. And, and so with the Christian faith, Paul knew Jesus and Jesus alone is either all or nothing. And if you add anything to that, if you take anything away from that, you pervert the message of God's simple grace. And 2,000 years later, there are still perversions 
of that pure message. In fact, today, I would contend that there are two things people normally assume about the message of grace that are not true. The first one, and these are going to sound like they cancel each other out, but the first one is this, that, that I have to somehow transform myself before I can receive grace. And what we're going to find in this letter is that you just can't do that. It is not just not within your will, even if it was within your will, it is impossible to do it. Here's the second thing. It is that there are things I don't have to do even if I've been a recipient of grace. I have a dear friend of mine who just took a brand new pastorate in my home state. Very first thing he was confronted with uh, were, were two members of the church in leadership, one male, one female. They had left their respective spouses. They were sleeping together. They were planning on getting married. They asked for a meeting with him. I thought, well, that's bold. They sit in his office and they go, look, I know we're living in sin right now, but God's going to forgive us for this when it's all done and the divorce will be final soon. And then when that happens, we're going to get married and then everything will be okay, right? What are you smoking? Yeah. What, what is that? What drives that kind, of, that kind of naivete? Well, it's this idea that, well, it's, it's all by God's grace. And so I don't really have to do because God will forgive me. Okay? One says I have to be transformed to get grace. The other one says the grace I receive doesn't have to transform me. Both of these assumptions will hold you in bondage. Even if you feel like you're free. And it'll keep you from the one thing God wants for you, which is freedom in Christ. That's what makes this book so important. I, I, I have a feeling some of you have been living under some unnecessary burdens. Maybe they were placed on you by religious leaders, even pastors, people who do what I do for a living in, in past years. And you've constantly tried to, to live up for, to that. And the result is that so much of your religious and spiritual life has been characterized by despair. I just don't know how I can continue to live this way because you can't live up to the standard. Some of you may have the opposite problem. You, you may have lived for a long time under the assumption that the grace of God can justify you without changing you. And so you live oblivious to the fact that you're an unsaved Christian. We got a whole book about that out in the foyer. You may want to check it out if that's you, if you have that sort of libertine view of grace. And so this letter was written to both groups, primarily to the first one, but also to the second one, because there's an explanation here, not only of how we live by the simple, unadulterated message of God's grace, but by the effect that that grace has on us, the liberating effect that God's grace has on us. This letter is for all of us. It's for all of us. Because the greatest hope in the world is found here. A life that is driven by the grace of God is truly free. So how do we get there? How do we get back to grace? We're going to answer that question together over these next several months. And the introduction to this letter helps us understand, at least at first, what the grace-driven life looks like. What are the characteristics of a grace-driven life? Well, there, there are four of them that we find in these five verses. Number one, a grace-driven life is dependent on Jesus. It's dependent on Jesus. Chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Do you catch that not-so-subtle jab at his opponents right there in the introduction of the letter? Yeah. I don't need the approval of people among you who are now trying to convince you that I'm a false teacher. And what's the evidence he puts forward for the legitimacy of the message he preaches? This will encourage some of you greatly because there's a lot of things Paul could have appealed to. 
He would have had a PhD had he been living in the, in the year 2020. He was an Old Testament scholar, extraordinary. He could have appealed to his ethnicity. I'm a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. There was a lot of things that, that he could have appealed to in his life, things that would have made him look good. He was highly educated and cultured. No doubt he could have argued circles around his opponents. He doesn't, he doesn't appeal to any of that here. He says, my message comes from one source. My authority comes from one source. My liberty to live as God wants me to live comes from one source, and his name is Jesus. And you know what? Nobody knows this better than Paul, right? You know Paul's story. You know that the first words in this first verse are miraculous words. Paul, an apostle? I mean, to the Jewish mind, just a few years, just a couple decades before this letter was written, that would sound the same way as if I got up here and said to you, Osama bin Laden, an apostle. It, it just doesn't, like, there's a disconnect, right? It just, this, this man was a religious terrorist. He was a fanatic. He once sought to persecute, imprison, and kill people who did not agree with him. This same man. Less than 15 years before writing this letter was the chief architect of the first ever act of martyrdom that we find witness for us in the Christian scriptures. In Acts chapter 7, he's holding the cloaks while overseeing something that he likely helped orchestrate, which is the, the violent stoning of a deacon named Stephen. This is the man we're talking about. Luke says that's what he did. But then he goes to Syria to try to persecute some more Christians, to continue that violence. And on that road to Syria, Saul of Tarsus met Jesus, and absolutely everything changed for him beyond that. Because on that road, Jesus would strike Saul blind. All of his physical sight would be taken from him, and at the same time, he has never seen more clearly than he saw on that road. Jesus would reach down and rip out Saul's independence and make him wholly dependent. And at the same time, Saul had never been more liberated than he would be on that Damascus road. And the same Jesus, Paul says here, who made me dependent on that road is the same Jesus who sustains me now, who sends me out to you, who uses me to protect the purity of the gospel, and who loves me. I am wholly dependent on him. The late theologian R.C. Sproul puts it this way, self-reliance and Christian discipleship cannot coexist in anyone who truly follows the Lord. Did you know that's what the scriptures teach, by the way, about you? If you've been trying to white-knuckle it through life, and you haven't made it, and you're wondering why you're in despair, you, you haven't read and, and really contemplated and applied to your own life what the scriptures teach about you, about your own nature. The heart, Jeremiah said, is, is, is deceitfully wicked. And yet we live in a culture that says, trust your heart. What? What? Trust your heart? Nick, don't trust your heart. Because you can't trust yourself. You can't do it. Did you know the scriptures teach that by yourself, apart from this grace that Paul's going to speak about, you are devoid of the, the ability even to believe in God, yet alone, let alone to believe that that God will sustain you? God actually has to give you that faith in order for you to believe? Did you know that your will is so corrupt that God actually has to jumpstart it before you have the ability to even be saved? Did you know that no matter how many years you have been a follower of Jesus, when temptations come, they still come from the same place? Look at James chapter 1, verse 14. 
Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When Pastor Joel faces temptation years, decades even after I first believe in Jesus, that is still the root. And what Jonathan Edwards said centuries ago is still true even of this pastor. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. This is who we are. You ever seen a baseball game? Hopefully not a professional one, but one where the runner puts one over the wall, rounds the bases, only to be called out at home plate because he didn't touch first. It's disappointing. Chapter 1, verse 1 is first base. The freedom that Paul describes in this letter begins in only one way. Full, complete, eternal dependence on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I need that gospel every bit as much today as I did when I first believed. And the grace-driven life that gives me liberty is wholly dependent on Jesus. Number two, a grace-driven life is anchored in history. We're going to come back to to verse two. Let's look at verses three and four for the moment. Grace to you, he says, And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So he's taking this moment of struggle for these Galatian Christians who are not really sure what to believe anymore. They're not really sure how they're supposed to live anymore. And he's trying to bring clarity to this moment of confusion by intersecting it with another history-changing moment that from the perspective of the Galatians had happened just 18 years prior to this letter. But here's the good news. 2,000 years later, as you and I sit here, that same connection can be made today. You may be living in bondage to addiction or to depression or family dysfunction. You may wonder to yourself, Pastor, I'm a Christian. How do my struggles right now relate to everything that happened in Jesus' time? 2,000 years later, there's still a connection. It's with something that's just as real as the problems we face today. I sometimes get the opportunity to speak on a state college campus, a, a typically just a tad more secularized environment than the seminary. A lot of diversity of opinion. And I remember at one point, not too long ago, too many years ago, having a young student who was an atheist who confronted me on that campus, and and this is what he said. He said, really, the, the only difference between us right now is that if there were 4,000 supposed gods in the world, I don't believe in any of them, you don't believe in 3,999 of them. Well, he's right about that, although it wasn't really originally his argument. He ripped that off from the famed atheist Christopher Hitchens. But his point that he was trying to make is that every worldview has a narrative. Every world religion, like Christianity, has a narrative. Where do we come from? What's wrong with us? What's the problem? What's the solution to that problem? What's the end that we're all headed to? I mean, those questions are are sought. People seek answers to those questions through every major world religion on the planet and every one of those world religions as a result has its own creation narrative some of them have their own flood narratives narratives on how eternal life is to be gained he's absolutely right about every bit of that but there's one thing that sets christian faith apart we actually believe those things happened what do i mean by that the hope in christ the freedom that he provides paul now ties all of that inextricably 
to events in space and time and history that are verifiable. See, every other faith on the planet has a story behind it, but that story is never really tied to the truthfulness or the historicity of what actually happened. So if you're here in front of me this morning and you're a Buddhist and you, you practice that sevenfold path, you follow that path and that path is what it is, whether or not the things that are said of Buddha's life were true or not. Your religion is not inextricably connected. It's not dependent in any way on the veracity of those historical accounts of Buddha's life. That's where Christianity gets set apart. Because for the Christian faith, we don't just have a story. We, the, our faith is a story. And the validity of our faith is dependent on this story. Here's the further good news. It's a true story. How else do you explain this? I get that there are people in front of me. You have, I don't know about six-day creation. I mean, okay, whatever. I don't know about that whole global flood thing. Whatever. Axe heads floating. Donkeys talking. Are you insane? Does, does that really happen? Look, you bring all your questions. You struggle with those questions as long as you want. But I'm going to tell you something. 2,000 years ago, brothers and sisters, 500 people saw something. And it completely transformed everything. I'm talking about disciples that were running like cowards that are now willing to suffer inverted crucifixion or being sewn in half or whatever it will take to get this message to the ends of the earth. I'm telling you, something powerful happened, something so powerful, in fact, that even Jewish historians, some at least, will say the only reasonable explanation for this outside of mass hallucination is resurrection. Something happened. So in verse 1, we learn that my freedom in Christ calls for dependency on Christ. In verses 3 and 4, Paul uses history to remind me that Jesus is dependable. He can be counted on. He will never break a promise. He will always be there. Listen, when you struggle with sin, you fail in your fight against temptation. When you feel despair... When, when, it get, when the darkness just encircles you and you almost feel like you're in some metaphorical coffin six feet under and you can't get out from under it and you're experiencing what the Puritans used to call the dark night of the soul, when you sense an emptiness like that, you need to know this. This moment that you're in right now, it is overwhelmed by another moment 2,000 years ago. An historically verifiable crucifixion that paid every debt you would ever owe and a death-crushing resurrection that provides every hope you will ever need. That moment in history, it's that moment. It's not the moment you're in right now. It is that moment that Paul says changes everything. It can alter your own history. From this day forward, you can be changed. You can be changed because of what happened then Paul tells us a grace-driven life is anchored in verifiable history. It is dependent upon Jesus. Thirdly, a grace-driven life is lived in community. Let's back up to verse 2. Who's he writing to? To the churches of Galatia. Now, the, the word church has a couple of senses in which it's used in the New Testament. Sometimes it refers to a universal reality, that there is, in fact, one body, the redeemed, all of them, of all of the ages and all of the places, one body of Christ that extends through all times and seasons. In fact, this morning as we gather right now, uh, with reference to the rest of the planet, we're actually among the last of our brothers and sisters to worship on the Lord's Day. From, from our reference point, this all started last night in Asia. 
All right. It started, or maybe even further east than that. I'm not very good at geography. One universal body. There's another way that this word is used, and it's to describe one identifiable congregation of people within that larger universal body. A, a congregation that's identifiable, that meets uh, and gathers regularly by covenant, that it has biblically qualified leadership, pastors and deacons. That's, that's Paul's use here in Galatia. We know that principally because the word is in the plural. Churches means that throughout Galatia, from the Black Sea on down, there were multiple identifiable local bodies. We have 55 of them, by the way, right here in Jefferson County, West Virginia, worshiping this morning. And here's what we know and we can infer with certainty from this phrase in verse 2. Grace is a community-oriented activity. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There is no individual victory. We spend way too much time particularly over the last 40 or 50 years, talking about my victory. You have no victory apart from the larger body of Christ. And the, the, the New Testament in its entirety uh, lends itself to that point. There, there are one, two, three, four letters written to individuals of the 20 that we have, 20 plus that we have in the New Testament. One written to a guy about an issue involving a runaway slave. So even that wasn't about some individual. It was about a relationship and the right way to view that relationship. The three others, two written to Timothy, one written to Titus, pastors, and what they had to do with was the way those men should lead the body. So even the letters that are addressed to individuals find their way somehow back to a local, identifiable body of Christ. This was so ingrained in the mind of the apostles that when they wrote, they wrote to churches. And they did it addressing issues in the church. And here's, I want you to notice what's happening here. There's this large controversy. I told you, we're going to get into this. It's an angry letter. Paul doesn't just look at the side that's violating the gospel and say, why don't you all just get out of here? His aim here is not for split. It's not for, you know, get angry, go down the street. It's, it's not that kind of thing. He says, listen to me. Read this letter. Contemplate its implications for the life of your congregation because you are all in this together. You are all in this together. You've probably heard me tell the parable of the man that was exiled on an island because of a shipwreck. He was the only survivor. He was there for years. And finally, rescuers catch up with him, and they're, they're getting ready to make the rescue. And when they make landfall, they notice that the man's built three huts. One is the one he comes out of, then there's one right next to that, and then there's one way over here. And so as they're rescuing him and giving him the medical attention he needs and preparing to get him back on the ship, back to civilization, they ask him about those three huts. And he says, well, the one I came out of, that's, that's my house. And the explorers, the, the people that rescued him said, well, what about the one over there way on the other end? And he goes, oh, well, that, that's my church. That's where I worship every Sunday, all by yourself. Well, yeah, I'm the only one here, so yeah. I, yeah. What's that one in the middle? He said, well, that's where I used to go to church. But I got angry about some stuff. I didn't like the way things were going. I, you can be ungracious to the bride of Christ and simultaneously uh, you won't be living a life under Christ that is driven by grace. Worship. Be in here. Man, it's, yeah, we're going to have some fun. We're going to do some stuff. But mainly this is about your spiritual health. 
Make this gathering a priority. Put it on the calendar. Go to bed a little earlier on Saturday night. Do it for the good of your own soul. Get in a small group. Build community with other people who are part of this body so that we can grow together. Find a way to serve. In coming weeks, you'll see the team covenant table back out in the foyer. There are multiple ways that you can get involved. Because we are all in this together. A grace-driven life is lived in community, a community of people who are dependent upon Christ, a community of people who look back to a moment in history that changed everything for all of us who genuinely follow Jesus. Here's the, here's the final thing about a grace-driven life. A grace-driven life gives God glory. This is the conclusion to the introduction. Verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I grew up in the South, so we say amen. Some people say amen. It just means so be it. May it ever be. May it ever be. It's amazing the number of times in Scripture you see grace and glory tied together because nothing brings God glory like God's grace. Absolutely nothing. I've had people say to me, Pastor, you don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I've wronged. You don't know how far down the rabbit hole I've gone. And I will say to you, you're exactly who he's after. The late Billy Graham got up to preach a crusade once in the 1970s, and one of his fronts right before he got up to preach was someone named Johnny Cash. You may have heard of him. Johnny got up and sang a gospel song. After he was done, there was this loud, boisterous group of rednecks. I can use that word because I are one, okay? There's this loud, boisterous group of them. They're over here, and they're just, they're just you know, I don't know. They may have brought their beer with them to the crusade. Who knows? And they're making a lot of racket. Billy took the podium, and he looked back at, at Johnny, and he said, Johnny, those are your people. And Johnny nodded his head and he said, they're the ones I'm after tonight. Some of you think, you don't know what I did. Listen, God is after you. This, this book, I, I hope this doesn't scare you to where you don't come. This book will arrest you. This message of God's overwhelming, transforming grace no effort required on your part, but it will transform you to the point where you're going you're gonna to move. And you're going to move in sync with the heart and the actions of Jesus. And you think your life is hopeless, that you're, you're doomed in bondage. Listen to the most encouraging news in the world. You were created to glorify the God who created you. And you do that best when you choose to live in the freedom of grace. That's a lesson we find all throughout the New Testament. Last night, I got to the opportunity and the privilege to, to lead a chapel service at the newly constructed Mountaineer Recovery Center. Those are men and women that get looked at by society in some, shall we say, not very good ways. But I'm going to tell you what I saw when I got up and I looked at that crowd last night. I saw a bunch of fighters. And I saw people who want for their own well-being, for the well-being of their families, most of them, if you ask them how many, you got kids? Tell me their names and ages. Let me, let, me, let me hear about your kids. What does that do? We'll do anything for our kids, right? 
Let me, let me, let me see if I can use that as, as a motivating factor, but here's, here's the other thing. I told them the story that I'm about to share with you, and I said, this story demonstrates that you don't need to fix yourself up before you come back to God. He's waiting on you. Luke chapter 15 tells us that story. There's a prodigal. There's a young man, a younger brother, two of them at least that we know. There's an elder one who stays back home. He's, as far as we can tell, he's faithful. He does everything that's asked of him. He works really hard. He's dependable. Then you got this younger brother who demands of his father this inheritance so he can take it. He goes off into a far country, Luke says, and he, he squanders it. Jesus is actually telling this story. He finally comes to the end of his rope and he says, I, I want to come back. Maybe if I rehearse a good enough speech, my daddy will let me back in the house and just put me on the payroll. I don't have to be a son anymore. Just, he'll just put me on the payroll. And here's the thing. When he comes home smelling like pigs and cognac, his father runs and embraces him. They have this big party. You know who's angry at the end of that? It's the older brother. Now all of a sudden, this one that looked dependable, looked faithful, looked like he loved his father, is revealed as having the same root problem as his younger brother. They both hated their daddy. Neither one of them wanted anything to do with their daddy. They wanted the inheritance. They just chose to go about it in radically different ways. One, through something we could rightly call legalism, I'm going to obey the rules, I'm going to follow the guidelines, I'm going to do everything that's asked of me, and the other, through libertinism, I'm going to get it now and I'm going to do whatever I want to do with it. Both of them alienated from their father. One just looked closer than the other one did, but they're both alienated from him. Only one comes back at the end of that story. Why? Because he recognized dependency. He gives all of himself back. One doesn't make it. Read the end of the story in Luke 15. Where is this older, faithful, dependable young man at the end of the story? He's outside the house. He refuses to come in. That story really illustrates well the two great misunderstandings that the Christian church has had about the subject of grace. Some of you, you've been living that legalistic life. And it's either led you to despair because you finally came to your senses and realized, I can't live up to this. Everything I got on my best day is like filthy rags in the sight of God. Or it led you to pride because you actually think you're pulling it off. Some of you still are like that prodigal. You may have come in here today smelling like pigs and cognac. And you wonder, will he ever take me back? Maybe I could just get on the payroll. Maybe there's some way that I could come in at a lower level. If you're white-knuckling through this entrapment to legalism, you need to repent of your self-righteousness and come to Jesus. And you will find a life that is driven by grace that gives you great freedom. If you are an individual that says, after everything I've done, I don't know if I can come home. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And you too need to repent and come to Jesus and you'll find the Father's arms wide open. And for the next months, all the way up until Mother's Day, this letter will be a constant reminder that you, me, everybody 
has that opportunity to live in the freedom of the grace of God. Come home to grace. Come home to the grace of God and live in freedom. Father in heaven, Lord, you have much to teach us over these next few months from this ancient letter. Lord, I pray that as we delve into its wisdom and, its, and mine its riches, that there would be so many people in front of me, people watching our live feed right now, others who would be completely set free, liberated, many of them grown up in a Christian church, thinking that grace meant this or that grace meant that, missing the real thing this entire time. Lord, I just pray that they, they come to you today and that they are liberated and that they recognize that it is based on a price you paid on our behalf 2,000 years ago and a resurrection to new life that guarantees us freedom from the life of death that we have earned for ourselves. Lord, I pray you'd set some people free this morning that are in front of me right now. And I pray that you would bring great glory to yourself in the process. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.